Hi friends, join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Today we are on season four, episode 22, Restless, the season four finale. The one that gives everyone a headache. <laughs> For real. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to ask you, Leah, what you thought of the episode, um, but you're going to say headache inducing? Is that your final thoughts? I don't know. It's just so, I know it's supposed to be like metaphorical and like all that, but it's also. It's just so odd. Like, it's a really hard episode for me to enjoy watching. I'll put it that way. I feel like it's one of those episodes that you have to watch with your brain on fully. Which, I mean, to be fair, I'm also sick. Which I feel like most people can tell in my voice. But so this was probably not the best time for me to watch an episode where I had to be fully aware. However, I just like episodes where it's like, you don't feel like you have to pay attention at every single frame. Or else you'll miss some crucial detail. Although I will say there was like frames where I was like, what the frick was that? Like that whole like cheese platter thing. I was like, hello. And he like told Olo, he's like, I have a platter of cheese. And it was just cheese. It's <laughs> like, okay. But it's not a bad episode. I just, I think I just like my TV a little more simple. <laughs> <laughs> That's understandable for sure. I don't mind episodes like this every now and then. It was like there were some scenes that were really obviously metaphorical and easier to pick up. And then some where I just was like, either this is going in a direction that I can pick up pretty quickly and I hate the direction it's going. Or it's going in a different direction and it's just going over my head. Um, like all of Xander's, that was my... That was my thought process. I was like, this is either blaringly obvious and what it's trying to say, or Joss is trying to subvert it somehow, and I'm getting confused. So I would, I will be very happy to hear the actual take on Xander's portion, because I feel like I got Buffy's, Giles, and Will's pretty well. Um, Will's, I feel like, was the easiest to pick up on, just because I feel like we've already kind of hinted on a lot of stuff with her building up to it, so I feel like hers was kind of easier to pick up on. But there are also moments just in general where I was just like, I don't get that. I And I really feel like I'm pretty good at picking up like metaphors and themes and um, underlined ideas and all that, but I don't know. Yeah, I find that Restless to me is my candy episodes. Like I love, and I know no one's surprised by this, I love episodes that have so much metaphor and have so much uh, foreshadowing and you kind of have to like really think about it and it's very um, surreal. I love all the dream sequences as we all know. Um, I eat things up that are very character centered and this episode is so fully focused on analyzing what makes these characters tick. And that's like the thing that I love most about this show is like the way that it talks about these characters um, and it really gets very meta. Um, and I know some people it drives them nuts, but that is what I really like about it. And so for me, this episode is just like one of my favorite things ever. 
Um, I will say analyzing scene by scene, frame by frame was quite exhausting and it took me like three days to go through this episode. Mm -hmm. My husband would walk by and joke and be like, all right, how many minutes have you been – or like how many minutes into the episode are you now? And I literally had been doing research and watching the episode for like two hours and I had only gotten five minutes into the episode and I was like, Mm. this is going to take forever. (laughs) Um, So – but yes, from what I have seen online – uh, when I did a poll asking people what what they thought was the worst episode of season four, this episode actually came up a, a couple of times, which I was very surprised by. I wasn't aware that this episode was hated by a portion of the Buffy fandom. Sarah's um, like, you just don't get it. Like, I get it. <laughs> no, and I don't. I truly understand why people feel that way because it is very strange and it's meant to be strange. Um, I also know I'm weird and I like weird things like this, um, which is why I decided to start a podcast because no one's really talking about these weird things in a super deep way, or I should say most Buffy podcasts aren't. So I was like, you know what? This is my niche. And if you like that, then this is the podcast for you. If you don't like that, then maybe this isn't the episode for you. I don't know. So either way, hopefully I can make this clear. Um, but I also kind of want to preface this whole thing with the beauty of art and the beauty of Buffy is you can find your own interpretations with things. There is an authorial or a writer intent, like Joss very clearly had an idea and what he wanted to say when writing this, but there's also going to be your own basic interpretation. And so I want to be really careful when we're talking about this, um, I want us to talk about what we think this episode is, and then at the end of that, I will talk about what Joss meant this episode to be. Um, And so I don't want it to be like, this is the only way you can interpret that because I recognize for a lot of other people, like this, they like this episode and they're going to take what they want from the episode and that's totally valid and that's totally okay. So, um, and then the second thing I was going to say, Leah kind of mentioned it earlier, but Leah and Tavi are both kind of sick. They have sore throats today. So, uh, give us grace as we go through this episode. It's going to be quite a hefty one. And, um, if they're not as talkative, that's why. So hopefully <clears throat> I'll do a little the heavy lifting this episode. All right. So Restless, written and directed by Joss Whedon, aired May 23rd. 2000. All right. So this episode serves as a coda, as Joss describes it, the concluding passage of a piece or movement, typically forming an addition to the basic structure. So it is a coda to the fourth season instead of a climax, as Whedon wanted to achieve something different for a season finale. Whedon felt the season's overall story arc had not been as cohesive as it could have been, which I was like, you can say that again. While talking about the writing of the episode, Whedon said it had been like writing poetry, a process he found liberating and strange. Like the earlier Hush, an episode with almost no dialogue, he viewed the episode as an exercise in form and writing and what it means to write. The episode has no real structure, which was a departure for Whedon, as everything he had written before was constructed before even starting the script. Yet despite its fragmented style, the episode unfolds coherently in four discrete acts, each act comprising one character's dream. Joss says, the most important thing when I first started it was that the dreams be dreamlike. It's about combining the totally surreal with the totally mundane. It then became a question of basically writing poetry, basically free associating. Obviously, things had to get worse at the end of each act. People had to be in peril because this thing was trying to kill them in their dreams. But beyond that, there really was no structure. So I was basically sitting down to write a 40-minute tone poem. 
Dynamic editing contributed to the surrealistic nature of the episode, abrupt cuts from close-up to extreme wide angles and sudden shifts from normal speed to super slow motion. They're used particularly in Buffy's dream. There are several sequences become slow motion partway through them and then revert to normal speed as they continue. Xander's dream features mismatches between sound and image. Characters are sometimes shown not speaking even as their voices are heard. Additionally, silence is used frequently to both reflect the character's disorientation and to unsettle the audience. Whedon's cited films by Steven Soderbergh as his main inspiration for the odd editing, especially the limey and the underneath. He also listed Orson Welles's version of The Trial and Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut as inspiration for many of his shooting and editing decisions. Um, and a lot of the information I'm going to be citing today, believe it or not, you can actually find it on Wikipedia. The Restless Wikipedia page has a pretty thorough um, recap and rundown of this episode and some behind-the-scenes things. Um, and a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff uh, comes from the DVD commentary. Joss actually has a very thorough DVD commentary talking about like scene for scene and shot, sometimes shot shot for shot of this episode, which is I highly recommend and is very helpful. Buffy scholar Nikki Stafford calls the surrealistic episode unprecedented in television, saying it is so jam-packed with information that we'll probably be seeing allusions to it for the rest of the series. <clears throat> we will. And referring to it as a mysterious lead-in to the emotionally turbulent season five. Restless received high praise from critics upon airing, particularly for its character development, visual direction, and wit. It is frequently noted as one of the best episodes of the series. The episode received critical praise and is often included on lists of the best episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In Entertainment Weekly's list of 25 best Whedonverse episodes, including episodes from Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dollhouse, Restless placed at number 20, where they called it visually lush and trippy and said, it reestablished that this genre show was really and truly a deeply affecting character drama with a delightfully bent sense of humor. Um, and then, I mean, it's just – the list goes on. Multiple, multiple lists have listed this as one of their top 10, top 20 best episodes of television. Um, uh, even, you know, Futon critics called it the most daring episode, more daring than Hush, another acclaimed episode of the fourth season. I guess that's true. I never thought about how experimental season four is because I kind of forget that this episode and Hush are in the same season. Weird, like, huh? They and definitely where the wild tried... things are is definitely experimental. Yeah, like I think they definitely <laughs> tried to like because it was such a different season from the first three seasons that they they really tried to go there, which some really hit and some really didn't. And I think that's kind of what happens when you experiment, right? Some stuff's gonna work, some stuff's not. And I appreciated that they went there because we got some truly fantastic episodes. And like like we've said all season, this season is the choppiest season as far as quality of episodes. It's very uneven. We have fantastic episodes and fantastic run of episodes, like some of the best episodes of the series. And then you have some of the worst and it's just, it's whiplash and it creates a very uneven season. Uh, and lastly, this episode is on Joss Whedon's own list of his favorite episodes. He includes Restless saying, most people sort of shake their heads at it. It was different, but not pointless. In 2001, the episode received two nominations for the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Awards for Best Contemporary Makeup in a Series and Best Contemporary Hairstyling in a Series, which I always scratch my head when that happens because I'm always thinking, 
what hair it maybe it's all the wigs maybe it's all like the costume changes and all that other stuff but i didn't feel like any of the hair and makeup really stood out any more than in other episodes so i'm always curious like what constitutes that but dude same i guess like willow and tara in that one episode like scene in the back of the van like they wore lipstick they wore lipstick i mean well they're all technically wearing makeup the entire episode, but I didn't feel like it was anything unique and special, but maybe it's the amount of outfit changes and the amount of different looks like that tallies up or something. I don't know. Um, It was rumored this episode was to guest star many past reoccurring characters. Willow's classroom dream was to feature Larry, Cordelia, and Amy. Jenny was to be pushing the baby carriage instead of Olivia, followed by Olivia crying in Spike's crypt, showing both the important Interesting. women. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Faith was going to appear in Buffy's bedroom, telling her to be back before dawn instead of Tara, while Angel was to have appeared in the desert as the voice of the first Slayer, which I always uh, – I'm so heartbroken by that one in particular because – We have um, the beginning of season three when Buffy's – like she has those couple of dream sequences when she's thinking about Angel and then there was one in particular where she's having – it almost feels like a slightly prophetic dream and Angel's there and it's not one of her like guilty dreams and I thought that would be kind of a cool continuity. Um, Unfortunately, Joss Whedon was only able to recruit Seth Green, Mercedes McNabb, and Armin Shimmerman to return for this episode, which, ah, man, missed opportunities. That would have been really, really cool. I hate when um old like actors can't come back. I mean, I understand why. It's like it's one episode, you have a full schedule, especially like Cordelia and Angel cuz I mean they have like a whole other show. Mm-hmm. But it still sucks cuz I'm like, "Oh, for the sake of the show, it would have been so interesting." Mhm. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So jumping into the episode, this is actually the first episode that we've seen so far that jumps straight into the credits right after the recap, um which is really interesting. And I believe I read somewhere that Joss did this because he wanted the dream sequence to be as uninterrupted as possible, like a real dream. Um, Obviously they have the commercial breaks, but if you're going to like cut to the title sequence, it kind of ruins the flow of the episode. All right. So right away, we, we know something's different. There's no music starting out. It's literally just Buffy saying goodbye to Riley. Um, and immediately that tells us this is going to be an amazing episode because Riley is gone. <laughs> well, I think it's also funny that they were like, all right, we have to get, re- we have to tie up the season somehow. Like, jo- you know, Joss was like, all right, time to do my cleaning work. Like, time to just like put in the <laughs> stuff I need to put and then I can get to what I actually want to do. Yeah, he's like, who is the dead weight on this show for this season? Um, Riley. Bye, Riley. (laughs) There's a few lines that is cut out of the script, and I will read them as we go along. Some of it is enlightening. Some of it is just mundane, but I'll try to keep the important stuff in here. So um, uh, Buffy says, you sure you'll be all right? In the script, Riley says, sure as I am of anything, which is less and less these days. And I was like, yeah, relatable. So Riley's going to go have a debrief and talk to the initiative, and uh, he says he'll call Buffy in the morning when it's over, and he leaves. And it's really interesting how this first scene is shot, or these first couple of scenes that are shot, because the camera is – it feels like it is a little bit lower and it's placed in a way that you can see all the characters. It feels like a play. Everybody's standing in front of the camera talking to each other. And then as everybody exits the shot, this happens twice, they move past the camera um, like they're exiting the scene. And it creates this idea that 
we are part of the Scooby gang. We're actually in the room. And it also contrasts how much movement there is in the camera later on. The camera is very still right now with the characters moving and later on the camera and the characters move, creating that surreal feel. Okay, so the gang talks about how they're still wired from the spell back in Primeval. They invite Joyce to come sit down and watch a movie with them. And she's like, oh, no, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to go upstairs, you know, as moms do. I couldn't help but notice that Joyce and Giles seem a lot more comfortable with each other than they have, like, all season long. And it kind of felt like mom and dad. It was really cute. I feel like they barely had any, any interactions in season four. Also, well, Joyce just hasn't been in season four a lot at all. But I mean, even the fact that she hasn't really met Riley, I was like, what? Like, that blew my mind. Yeah. Joyce was in The Freshman really briefly for one scene. She was in Fear Itself really briefly for one scene. And then she was in This Year's Girl for, again, one scene to be kidnapped by and tied up by Faith. And then Who Are You at the very beginning, again, one scene. And then this this episode, five episodes out of the total of 22 episodes, which is crazy thinking back to the first three seasons when she was in pretty much every single episode. All right. So Xander pulls out Apocalypse Now. Willow says an interesting line. She says, did you get anything less Heart of darkness So Apocalypse Now is actually based off of the novel Heart of Darkness, um, which we'll get into more in Xander's dream. But Xander represents the heart. And his entire dream, just to kind of give you guys a sneak peek, he's actually worried that he will become like his father, which is heartless. So like this kind of foreshadows Xander's whole dream sequence. All right. So the gang pops in Apocalypse Now and promptly falls asleep. And then we have this like dream-like music as we pull in on Willow first and foremost. And the whole sequence right here, we have the heart playing. This whole sequence has a bit of Willow and Tara's theme. Um, And before we get into this, it's really important to remember that each of these characters, and I don't know if you guys caught this at all, each of these characters' dreams are from their point of view, obviously, but that means that everyone they interact with is how they view that individual character, Mm. and that includes themselves. So what other characters are wearing is not necessarily what they would wear in normal life. That's what like Willow thinks they would wear, or that's how Willow views them, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at each dream sequence. So in the commentary, Joss says, as we've known since nightmares, Willow fears that underneath it all, she's still just a badly dressed geek. So we immediately jump into Tara's dorm room. The curtains are drawn and the room is lit only by the ambient glow of Christmas lights. Um, Tara is laying naked in bed, but she has a sheet pulled up and Willow is painting something on her back and we can't quite see yet. And they, we look down and we see the little kitten playing. Um, and it's really, really interesting. The main colors in Willow's dream sequence are red and gold or red and yellow. The script even says... Um, to focus on the fact that the cat is playing with a red ball of string and framed by a golden pillow. And you'll notice that Willow is wearing a golden shirt, Tara has a red sheet, and every character moving through each scene, except for I think the very last scene in the classroom, every character is wearing some form of red or gold, um, or at least every main character that uh, Willow interacts with. Um 
or the stage itself is gold. Um, and obviously we have Buffy in black and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's really, really interesting. Riley's got kind of like a whitish gold hat. He's got a red bandana. Like uh, Harmony's got red on as well. Uh, the background for the play is gold. The curtains are red. Like there's so much red and gold. Um, the scene with Xander and Oz. Oz is wearing a gold shirt. Xander's wearing a red shirt. It's just – it's kind of – it's a kind of crazy. And we'll talk about that in a second. So – um. The red represents her sexuality and the yellow represents the sunrise. And we talked in spoilers in season three, like in the dream sequence between Faith and Buffy, but the cat represents the spirit of the slayer. Willow's dream comes first and also has a cat in it because Willow represents Buffy's spirit. Not to mention the whole magic and feminine correlation this season. So like they're kind of like starting strong here. So Tara talks about um, the cat's name. She says you think she would have told us her name by now. Willow says she will. She's not all grown up. Tara says you're not worried. Willow says I never worry. I'm safe here. All right. So what is your guys's interpretation of this scene between Willow and Tara? I don't know. It's it's weird seeing Tara so sexual because I feel like we don't usually see her like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's also from Willow's point of view, so that makes sense why she's more sexual. Because I mean, you know, obviously. But overall, how I just saw the scene was that, like, a lot of it was just, like, sexual innuendos, (laughs) which I know it Mm -hmm. wasn't, but, like, that's just kind of how I interpreted it was, like, especially, like, a cat. I know it's so stereotypical, but it's, like, anytime there's a cat and lesbians, like, I automatically assume that it's, like, some sort of weird metaphor or, like, their vaginas, um... Oh, there's a lot of vagina metaphors in this dream sequence, unsurprisingly. Okay, good, good. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so there was that, but I also thought it was interesting that, like, when Willow was painting, it makes you think that she's either going to be painting, like, a mural of Tara or, like, a beautiful picture on Tara, and it's, like, text, um, which is, I'm assuming, like, kind of, like, witches text or whatever spells. Mm-hmm. Um And I kind of thought that was interesting that it was, like, kind of showing that, like, a very fundamental part of their relationship is magic. And Mm. that's almost something that, like, helps them maintain their intimacy. I think that's pretty much it. That's the most of what I got from it. I I knew that the cat had something to do with it, but honestly, I just kept thinking of it as a vagina metaphor. So (laughs) a lot of the other stuff went over my head. What do you guys think the overall theme of – of Willow's dream is like what do you think the main thing that Willow is struggling with um it's like kind of like identity who she views herself as and who she's worried everyone else views her as she's always been kind of worried about what everyone thinks about her um it's not necessarily what people say it's how people view her so I feel like like the entire dream Buffy's always kind of like like, oh, you don't have to wear that costume. Like, you're already in character. It's like, like it's almost as if I feel like I get the vibes that Willow kind of has, like, imposter syndrome. Where it's mm-hmm. like, like she's, like, looking at the life that she has. She's, like, this powerful witch that's getting better and better. She's finally in a relationship where she feels, like, the most comfortable. I feel like her and Oz had this, like, sweet relationship. But I feel like this is our first one where she feels like she's a little bit more herself because it's, like you know, it's her true sexuality and all that sort of stuff. So I feel like part of her is kind of like, I feel like part of being, having an 
imposter syndrome is kind of waiting for things to fall apart. And, and so you kind of tend to self-sabotage. Um, and I feel like her dream sequence just kind of goes through all of that really well. Yeah. No, Taps, you you touched on it right there. Um, so Joss actually says, the scene with Tara is largely about their intimacy and trust and the safe place in her life that is her relationship with Tara. Um, so according to Mark Field in Myth, Metaphor, and Morality, he says, the scene is an homage to the movie The Pillow Book, which fits the calligraphy. The words that are written on Tara's back are actually written in Greek, and they come from a poem by the Greek poet Sappho of Lesbos called Hymn to Aphrodite. We actually get our word lesbian from Sappho's birthplace. Um, Sappho was a lesbian poet. Um, and the words that are painted on Willow's back are deathless Aphrodite on oh, your lavish. Is that why they called lesbians sapphics too? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. yep. Yeah. So the poem on Tara's back reads, Deathless Aphrodite on your lavish throne, enchantress daughter of Zeus, I beg you, queen, do not overpower my soul with heartaches and hard troubles. But come here if ever at another time, having heard my voice, you paid me attention and leaving the golden house of your father, you come to me. And it goes on for a lot longer. Obviously, Willow doesn't paint all of it on there, but um, it's a love letter, kind of like a fun little Easter egg there, a little bit of history for all of you guys. Um. So then Tara says something interesting. She says, you don't know everything about me, which this is kind of a little nice nod to that one moment where we saw Tara kind of um, hijack the spell that her and Willow do. And then we kind of never talked about it this season. So I'm glad they haven't forgotten about that. And hopefully we'll talk about that more in season five. Um, It's also interesting that Willow is aware that she doesn't know everything about Tara, yet in the dream sequence where everyone in Willow's dream is wearing a costume and assuming Willow of wearing one, Tara is naked. And I think that's so interesting. It shows the level of intimacy that they have. But I think also too that like Willow just trusts Tara and Tara has this like, this is who I am uh, vibe about her, even though we don't know everything about her. Tara says, are you going to finish in time for class? Willow says, I can be late. Tara says, you've never taken drama before. You might miss something important. Willow had mentioned taking drama in the Yoko Factor. Willow says, I don't want to leave here. And this scene reminds me so much of this year's girl. I think it was this year's girl where Willow talks about not wanting to share Tara with others. And I think, again, Willow feeling the safest and most like herself here with Tara, um, she doesn't want to leave because it's exhausting. She feels like she has to put on an act everywhere else that she goes, which honestly – understandable. <laughs> so then Willow goes and moves to the window. It says it's so bright and then op- pulls back the curtains and we have the golden sunrise, the sunlight coming through the window and we see the desert out behind the window. So sunrise and um, golden light is going to be, it's been hugely important uh, starting from season three. We kind of saw glimpses of that and we'll talk about it as it goes on. But Uh, Willow says there's something out there and then we see something moving briefly and we cut to the university hall and then we see Oz, Oz and Xander. And this scene was very interesting. Oh, bro. I saw this and I was like, what a waste to bring Oz back for this. (laughs) You could have brought him back for such a better episode. Um, I think it's interesting the way they're talking about like Tara. They like – mentioned like oh they do what did they mention they do spells was it spells? oh xander was like um i sometimes i think about two girls doing spells and yeah and he was like he was like tara, well, yeah and then he was like tara and and willow do spells together oz and like that i was like Ugh. like but then also just some like 
man, it's so embarrassing that like everyone in their dreams just views Xander as just a bumbling idiot. Mm. Um, which, you know, fair. Um, but I think that was a lot of what I kind of got out of the scene was just kind of like Willow feeling like everyone just views her as just a lesbian now. Uh, it's interesting, again, because like you were mentioning, Leah, this is how Willow views the people around her. So obviously she's like, all Xander thinks about is sex, which it's kind of true. That is all he thinks about. Um, but it's interesting how she views Oz, which is pretty similar to how she viewed him in high school. So if we are thinking about drama, the drama class that she's going to, as Willow's view of life um, and also her role in it, she sees Oz as very prepared. He's always a step ahead. He seems confident and assured, whereas Xander is completely focused on sex. Um, and it's it's I like that they paired Xander and Oz together in this hallway, kind of showing how Willow has moved past both these guys. These guys are both her love interests on the show and how like she kind of talks to them but then moves past them without really like seeing them. And I think it's kind of a cool uh, picture of how she just – she's done with men. Um, and then like I said before, both Oz and Sandra are wearing yellow and red. The As far as that – I I personally don't like that joke that Xander makes at the very end. Um, and it is noted that Willow has moved out of frame and out of the scene when Xander makes that comment, um, which is uncharacteristic of the rest of the episode because this is supposed to be from Willow's perspective. So why would they be talking when Willow's no longer in the room? Um, It doesn't really make sense narratively with the rest of the dream sequence. All right, so Willow enters backstage. Uh, There's a whirl of activity. The place is crammed with students in costume, obviously getting ready for an imminent production. To one side at the back of the stage is a bright lemon yellow backdrop, a painted sunrise. Um, The first person she recognizes is Harmony, who's dressed as a milkmaid. Joss said that all of the outfits represent exaggerated gender roles. Harmony in red with her dress and hair, she appears very simple and naive and very traditionally feminine, which is how I think Willow views her. Um, I also have a theory, and this was before I confirmed that Cordelia was supposed to be in this episode. I have a theory that Harmony is supposed to represent Cordelia, both Harmony and um, Anya together. Um, they're supposed to represent the mean girls that made fun of Willow when she was in high school, um, which was a huge part of her high school experience in life and how they acted nice to her when they wanted something from her, but then they were also extremely patronizing and cruel. Then Buffy shows up and she's dressed in a flapper look and there are a couple different viewpoints. Some people think that she's representing Daisy from Great Gatsby. I was about to say, but isn't that kind of an insult if she's supposed to be Daisy? Well, that's this is again Willow's perspective of her. I think that Willow views Buffy as not I think Willow views everyone as not as smart as she is except for maybe Giles. Uh the other the other character that um Buffy is compared to is I think her name is Velma in the stage play Chicago. Um both uh, Daisy, although it was inadvertently, both Daisy and uh, maybe it's Verna. Verna or Velma, I can't remember. Um, they're both murders. And so a lot of people suspect that that's how Willow views Buffy as not necessarily a murderer, but like a killer um, and not and kind of vapid. That's not necessarily my interpretation of it. 
I see it as Buffy's dressed as a flapper, and flappers of the 1920s were young women known for their energetic freedom, embracing a lifestyle viewed by many at the time as outrageous, immoral, or downright dangerous. Now considered the first generation of independent American women, flappers pushed barriers to economic, political, and sexual freedom for women. They wore short dresses and bobbed hair for embracing freedom from traditional and societal no bras, constraints. too. I remember mm-hmm. reading that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, they really were kind of the first wave of feminism. Well, they um, also their dresses had no shape to them because they were tired of wearing restrictive clothes, mm-hmm. and they cut off their hair so they wouldn't be seen as sexualized as they want. It was all about freedom because it was also mm-hmm. when um, it was also like in celebration of like being able to vote, but then also like the it's not during the ban of alcohol too, so it was very mm-hmm. much like speaking prohibition. Era. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep, yep. It was the Roaring Twenties. It was right before the economy collapsed too. So they Mm -hmm. had a lot of money. And I think that Willow sees Buffy as someone who is very bold, who's putting herself out there, who's pushing boundaries and stuff, Um, which is funny because it's it's a huge contrast to how Buffy in this in this moment views herself. Buffy seems unsure of herself and is like, oh man, like I should have I should have come wearing a costume. And it's almost as if Buffy is second guessing herself. But to Willow, she's going, you're actually doing far more than you think. Uh, Buffy's challenging stereotypes almost in direct contrast to how stereotypically dressed Harmony and Riley are dressed, which Riley, Willow got him spot on, let me tell you, cowboy guy. Say. <laughs> um, Riley doesn't have a name, which is that names are a really big thing in this in this episode. There's a lot about like, do you have a name? Do you have a title? Uh, you naming yourself versus give other people giving you names. And Riley's character doesn't have a name. He's and he's just happy to be there. So Willow is uncomfortable with the fact that they're about ready to go on stage. She hasn't even rehearsed. Um, Harmony is a little bit biting to her. Keeps laughing and talking about how like some people aren't prepared. Willow makes a little bit of a comment of this isn't Madam Butterfly, is it? Which is a reference back to Nightmares, where Willow had to be thrust on stage and sing that opera. And um, in that, she actually sang the words, or I guess the guy singing to her sang the the words, "Child behind whose eyes the witchery is shining," kind of a foreshadowing of Willow eventually becoming a witch. Um, Giles shows up. I think it's hilarious how Willow has him dressed in this moment. He's very dapper looking, very handsome. And we all know that Willow used to have a crush on him and looks up to him. So that was kind of funny. Um, Giles says probably the most important words when it comes to uh, Willow's feelings. He says, everyone pay attention. Everyone Willow has ever met is in that audience, including all of us. That means we have to be perfect. Stay in character. Remember your lines and energy, energy, energy. And this is how Willow feels. Um, She feels this need to be perfect and to perform constantly for those around her, which again is why she enjoys being with Tara because she doesn't feel the pressure of those things. So then Willow notices that figure from the desert behind everybody. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about um, race and the appearance and the way that the first Slayer is portrayed when we get to that scene at the very end in Buffy's. But um, I just want to point out it's problematic. And the way the script even writes uh, and describes her is a little jarring. It says, we won't catch all of this now, but it's a woman. She appears to be in soiled rags, not unlike a mummy's. Black hair and coarse dreads through neglect, not fashion. Face painted in colored clay, long, almost claw-like nails. We'll call her the primitive. Giles says, remember, acting isn't about behaving. It's about hiding. The audience wants to find you. They want to strip you naked and eat you alive. So hide. Um, 
Harmony has gone vamp and is trying to bite Giles. Okay, what did you guys think of this scene? Why do you think Harmony is doing this and why do you think Giles is acting the way he is? I think it's how Willow views Giles, that he's constantly in danger and constantly like having threats kind of like literally at his neck. Interesting. Um but he's so calm under pressure and he's so accustomed to it that Willow views it as like, oh, he can just shrug it off. He's Giles. He can do whatever he needs. Um, and so I think that that's kind of how I saw it was just more of like Willow views Giles as unmovable and untouchable. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question, another question for you guys. What were your guys' thoughts on some of the portrayals of Giles in this episode? Did you guys catch the show not shying away from Giles's watcher past and some of his roots in misogyny. Uh, Giles says, costume sets, the things, you know, things you touch them, hold them. He's trying to find the word and Harmony goes, props. Giles goes, no. And then Riley goes, props. And Giles oh, I, goes, yes. I thought yes. it was just because it was Harmony being stupid. But I, oh, I didn't even hear that. I thought it was just him because he just is like, <laughs> like Harmony. So, but that's interesting. I didn't think about in correlation to his past. Yeah, and once we get to Giles's dream sequence, we'll definitely have to talk about it there because I just I really appreciate that the show doesn't shy away from that, but it really kind of hammers home that and kind of digs into it, um, which oh I can't wait till spoilers because there's a lot to talk about with that. So okay, so Giles says everybody get on stage. This is going to be the best production of Death of a Salesman we've ever done. Um, everyone moves off. Then we have the cheese, man. I've made a little space for the cheese slices. So on my poll on Instagram, several of you were like, Yeah, I have no idea what the, <laughs> the cheese man is. He kept showing up and I was I so grossed out. I think that's the out. point though. I think that's the point. Like every dream has like something that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's what his character is. Yeah. Um, so the official reason for the cheese man is Joss has always maintained that there is no real meaning for the cheese man other than to show that the dreams were all connected and to throw a little bit of the ridiculous in there, just like there is in every dream. And then Joss really liked that he confounded everybody and that people were ascribing him meaning even though there was none. Uh, to him, he was like, hey, that means we're being successful. There are a few fan theories um, about what the cheese man represents, one of them being that the cheese represents Buffy and her relationship to each character. We know in earlier in season four when Riley goes to Willow and asks what Buffy likes and Willow says she likes cheese and then we have that funny moment where Riley's fluster doesn't know what to say to Buffy so he pulls up the cheese platter and says cheese? So the theory basically says like in this instance, Willow and Buffy are drifting apart this season and the I've made a little space for the cheese slices could indicate how they're trying to make room for each other in their lives. And then as we go on to each of the different cheese sequences in each of the uh, different scenes, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. But um, I personally go with Joss's interpretation because I think that's kind of a stretch, but it's fun to kind of make up your own head cannons for it. So sorry, everybody who's looking for some sort of meaning. That's literally the only thing in this episode that does not have meaning. <laughs> All right. So Willow goes back um, to some curtains. They are both read about two feet apart. This is supposed to symbolize a vagina, basically. Willow walking through. It's her sexuality. Um, and that's why she finds Tara at the very end. Willow talks about something following her. 
And then we see the play in progress. We see Harmony standing there with her pails. Riley's talking to her. Hello, little lady. Can I hold those milk pails for you? Again, it's very, very stereotypical lines for what you would expect from a cowboy and a milkmaid. And then Buffy over there just sitting lounging on the couch. I really think it's interesting that there's this very traditional view of Riley and we have hints of misogyny and sexism. Um, He's looking for a man a salesman as he looks pointedly into the camera, you know, trying to hammer home those feminist themes, while the slayer, or in this case, a very independent woman who is just as capable as any man is right there. It's just very interesting. Willow gets lost, can't find Tara at all. Uh, we cut back to Buffy and Riley. And honestly, I didn't notice until this rewatch that there's a guy who's supposed to be dead on the stage just laying there. And Buffy is like got this incredible monologue that she just spews out to Riley. We have like just interesting framing of the shots. Um, and I, I think this is supposed to be Willow's depiction of Buffy slaying all through the metaphor of a play. Mm-hmm where you have the damsel in distress that's crying, the man that supposedly has been slayed, and then Buffy rebuking the stereotypical man, or I guess he would be the representation of patriarchy in this scene, if we're going to get really meta. But, you know, that's the point of this scene, this scene in this episode, right? So Willow's running. Uh, something attacks her. A blade comes through and stabs her while she's in the red curtains. Buffy shows up and saves her. Um, and I wanted to read something. So, again – I had asked a bunch of you guys over on Instagram to give me your thoughts, if there's anything you wanted to contribute to this episode or any questions and stuff. And what's his face draws on Instagram says this. He says, Buffy has her in her most Buffy-ish outfit, maybe even a little idealized version on herself with the gorgeous cherry dress. Xander's unsurprisingly has Buffy showing the most skin with the little halter top and short pants, ironically a similar outfit to one Cordelia wears in Angel season one. Maybe Xander is subconsciously aware of how much her and Cordelia were alike pre-becoming the Slayer. Giles dresses Buffy in very childlike clothes, possibly showing how much he views himself as Buffy's father figure, but maybe also that deep down subconsciously Giles still views Buffy a little immature and unready for adult life. And lastly, Willow almost imagines Buffy as an extension of herself in an almost Willow-ish outfit, possibly showing how much her and Willow's relationship has grown in season four and how dependent they are on each other. Also, given Willow's own insecurities about her costume, in quotations, maybe Willow is trying to dress like her own idolized version of Buffy herself. And I thought that was really interesting because I did go back Mm. and look at it. Buffy's outfit does look very Willow-esque in this scene. Buffy says the play is long over. Why are you still in a costume? And Willow's like, I'm. this is just my outfit. And Buffy doesn't believe her. She says, everybody already knows. Take it off. Willow says, no, I need it. Buffy rips it off to reveal the outfit that Willow wore in Welcome to the Hellmouth, complete with like this extremely authentic wig. Like it looks just like mm-hmm. Willow very well done. from the very beginning. Um, Mark Field says this about this moment. He says, what's psychologically important about the classroom scene is that it highlights Willow's concern about her true self being revealed for all to see. She's always worried that in the end, she's the same inadequate loser Cordy's always told her she was. This concern gets expressed with reference to her attire, which we've seen since the softer side of Sears scene at the drinking fountain welcome to the hellmouth joss says that willow is feeling like she is wearing a disguise she isn't telling anyone about the truth the mislead is that what she's talking about is her sexuality but in fact what she's really talking about is that she still considers herself to be a big nerd if her friends saw her as she really was she worries that they'd care so little about her that they'd sit and watch while she was killed okay so this scene 
when everybody is sitting and laughing at Willow, I thought it was interesting that this is the only time that Anya is in Willow's dream and it's in the class making fun of Willow. Well, I also thought it was interesting that Tara and Oz are kind of like almost flirting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was like kind of like a way of just being like – and I think Oz tells her like I told you about her or like something like that. And I think that Willow has this fear that like everyone is more interested in someone else than her. Like that she they're that they've fallen for this facade. I feel like Willow just has this giant case of imposter syndrome in her own life. Yeah. I really liked the, each of the dream sequences. It like starts out slow and then by the time you get to the very end, it escalates and it's just – the end is always a gut punch. And this is one of those moments where you just feel so bad for Willow. Okay. So this part I thought was really interesting. I did not catch this until this rewatch and then when I was doing research. So the book report that Willow uh, gives is on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So A closet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that part. Go into a closet and then come out. It's a whole different world. That's hilarious, Tabby. Mm -hmm. That's hilarious. Well, she also – Willow always reminded me of uh, Lucy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the title of the book name is three parts of Willow's dream. The lion, which is the cat, Miss Kitty Fantastico. The witch, Willow. And the wardrobe, the reference to Willow's attire throughout the dream. Um, so then as in, at the height of everyone laughing at her, Willow is knocked to the ground. No one even reacts as Willow is fighting for her life. And we have the woman attacking her and sucking the life out of her. Um, and just as each dream happens in order of the cards laid out in Primeval during the spell, so like the spirit was given first. So each of the characters are attacked in their dreams and the way they're attacked is associated with that role. So Willow is choked, unable to breathe with the spirit sucked out of her as Mark Field calls it, aspirate, which puns with spirit. So we cut back to real time. Willow is choking and gasping for air. Everyone is still asleep. And then we cut to Xander, Xander's dream. Also, unfortunately, Xander's dream was also the longest of all the dream sequences. I was like, when is this thing going to end? <laughs> Buffy's felt like a blip, whereas mm-hmm. Willow's felt like the whole – or sorry, not Willow. Xander felt like the whole episode. It just kept going. It really just did not end. Which, I mean, I kind of understand why they're spending so much time with Xander. Xander did not get his own character-centric episode this season. And we but he barely- already got way too many in season three and season two. <laughs> like, way too many. Like, we already know everything that there is to know about Xander. I felt like this actually enlightened us quite a bit and kind of brought forth a little bit more of the reasons of why he is the way he is. I mean, the whole abusive father reveal at the very end, I personally thought was the most heartbreaking moment of this entire episode. It really I I genuinely felt bad for Xander. Doesn't excuse his toxic behavior in a lot of other uh examples and other scenes and episodes. But I will say I'm a little bugged by the fact that they have not really fleshed this side of Xander out very much in the previous seasons. This is something I think we should have known about Xander. Um, And they don't need to – like I know we had little hints, but I think there's a big part of his background that we didn't get until this moment, and I think it would have helped us know him a little bit more and maybe sympathize with him further. So, Well, it's also interesting that – I know I'm jumping ahead in his his dream, but – He's the only one who doesn't get his something removed or attacked 
by the uh, first slayer. It's his dad who rips his heart out. Mm. So according to Joss, Xander's dream, Xander fears that he's invisible to the group, as we've seen, and to Buffy in particular. Xander isn't in college, he isn't employed, and he feels himself inferior to those who are. So Xander starts right where we left him off with just him, Buffy, and Giles watching Apocalypse Now and Willow over there kind of choking and everyone's just ignoring her. Giles says, you know, I'm, I, it's all about the journey, talking about Apocalypse Now, and that's particularly true in this in the case of this episode, says Joss, it's the journey of life. It's a journey through these people's psyches, but it's not about the twist. It's not about the end. It's about the journey. You could say that about the show as a whole. So Xander gets up to go pee. Buffy says, you don't need any help, right? Xander thinks that she doesn't see him as capable. He goes upstairs and then this scene. Okay, guys, what were your thoughts on this What scene? in the world does this even mean? Like, I just like, there's <laughs> so much sexual stuff where I was like, oh, of course. One is fine, whatever. Make it some sort of point to the his psyche or whatever but I was like there was multiple of this where I was like well I don't get it I don't get it and this is what I was talking about earlier too I was like either they're trying to say exactly what I think they're trying to say which is just that he's like young and still thinks with his other head um or is it just like that there's other things that they're trying to say that I'm just not grasping I think it's just gross like why does it have to be with Buffy's mom like I and the fact that she what did she say like a conquest or something like that and I was like okay we get it come forward to door yeah whatever yeah. but Comfort. it just like was one of those things where it's like I get it Xander sexual all this stuff but it's like why why do we have to bring in Buffy's mom like that's so weird all the sexual stuff was either with Buffy's mom or his best friend and her girlfriend like it's just as gross. The lesbians. The, it's the, gross. It, it, it's all of the fetishes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of is. So this scene is actually reminiscent of the famous scene from The Graduate between Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft, and it was the inspiration for the Simon and Garfunkel song, Mrs. Robinson. Joss says, what I was really saying that was Xander is looking for love, not just trying to get into the pants of every pretty girl he's friends with, but really looking for some comfort, some love that he's clearly lacking from his family life. Mark Field writes again, Xander really does think about sex all the time. He said so in earshot and in in innocence, and we have no reason to disbelieve believe him. We know he's enamored of Buffy, so the fact that his dreams fantasize about Joyce, too, is not all that surprising. If there was another Summers woman, Xander might be interested in her, too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, more on that later. Uh, So... I agree with you guys. It's icky. And I was like, okay, why? Why was it Joyce? Long story short, I'm not saying anything new. We all know Joss has mommy issues. And it's interesting that both Riley and uh, Xander seemed to kind of struggle with the same thing. Joss wrote this part for Joyce to show that that uh, Xander is struggling with issues with his parent, his parental life. Um, it it honestly is icky, especially the part where it's a slow pan up from her breast up, and then she's talking without moving her mouth. Mark Field says that he thinks that Joyce is not talking like. You don't see the words coming out of her mouth. It's supposed to show Xander putting words into her mouth. It's not actually Joyce saying those things. It's Xander thinking and imagining her saying it, which is the same when it comes to Willow and Tara. And while I agree that's probably what Joss meant and what is happening, I think it's honestly still icky because of all the mommy issues that we know that Joss now has. There's other ways to show mommy issues rather than sexual Yes. Stuff. 
Agreed. Yeah, Freud is um, over there taking so many uh, notes for his upcoming podcast. Um, But seriously, I agree with you, Leah. Why do we have to show it sexualized? Why is so much of Xander's episode about sexualizing women – Frankly, yes, he's a teen boy, but there is more to Xander. I believe there is more to Xander than just thinking about sex. So like to devolve a lot of these characters simply to that, um, it just – it's icky and it detracts from what the message that Joss is trying to say. The fact that Joss has to clarify and say what, what, what I was trying to say was that he actually wants comfort and love. Well, it's kind of hard when he's sexualizing nearly every single girl in this dream sequence. Um, and if you haven't already listened to it, go take a look at our, I think it's the Ion team where we discuss how Maggie Walsh's storyline was heavily influenced by Joss's relationship with his mom. Of course, Whedon's self-insert Xander would dream about Joyce because he's missing comfort from his mother. No! Like, and her mouth not moving makes her seem like an object and not a person. Frankly, it's not a good look for Xander. And I just, I get what Joss is trying to do and I think he could have done it better. So rant over. Okay, so throughout Xander's dream, he makes a lot of, oh, I should probably catch up. Oh, I need to keep moving forward, things like that. This is him feeling inferior and behind all of his friends. Um, he views, I think it's it's Willow and then it's either Buffy or Anya. Willow and another character, we'll get to it, where they say, oh, I'm already way ahead of you. Again, that's how Xander views them. They're all way ahead of him moving on with their lives and he's still stuck driving an ice cream truck with no purpose in life. So then Xander moves down the hallway uh, after promising that he was going to join Joyce in the bedroom. I also think – okay, just okay, – I'll get there in a second. Okay. All right. So uh, Joyce says, don't get lost. He gets in the bathroom. The initiative guys are all watching him. I wrote in my notes. I was like, ah, oh, here are all the other guys with mommy issues watching another guy. But it just killed me that he just goes – I'll find a different bathroom. <laughs> There's no like, what are you guys doing? And like, he just was like, I'll leave. Yeah. This is another typical Tuesday. Well, it's funny to me too. Like it's another symbol. It's like Xander can't perform. And he's like feeling that pressure with all of these military guys who like, you know, they look very manly. And it's like, you know, it's a dick contest. All right. Um, it's also important to note that Xander keeps ending up back in the basement. Everyone's going places and moving on up literally, but he's stuck down here. So he crosses over into Buffy's room, except – which I'm like, okay, there never was a bathroom in Buffy's room. Where are you going, Xander? Um, he ends up back down into the basement. We hear the door uh, banging. Something's moving behind it, scratching it. Xander is very clearly scared of it. He says, that's not the way out. Um, and so then Markfield writes, Xander's problem is that he hasn't yet figured out how to actually make his life better. When he left the bathroom, he simply ended up in his basement. The initiative's observation makes him change his behavior, just like we discussed in their whole objective this entire season, which is behavior modification, you know, clockwork orange, all that other stuff. But Xander isn't sure what to replace that behavior with. He's stuck. And I just – all of these characters need to go to therapy, but Xander in particular – He's stuck because he doesn't know how to get out of this cycle and he doesn't know how to replace all these negative behaviors with positive ones in, an, in a way to move forward in his life. And so because of it, he's left down in this basement 
going, I'm trying every door, every way that I know how to get out of here. But the only one I haven't tried is the one that the banging's coming from. And what we're going to learn is he doesn't want to try that one. That's why I keep saying that's not the way, because that's the one that will end up with him looking just like his father. And he's terrified to look like his father. And I thought that was absolutely heartbreaking. And frankly, like I I can relate to that. And I think a lot of us can. I think the problem with Xander's dream is they have the messy sexual metaphors and it overshadows the really truly deep message, mm-hmm. which is Xander's terrified. That was my issue. It's like, why is there like three scenes fully dedicated to uh, to Xander's like mm-hmm. sexual desires and one scene dedicated to its actual mm-hmm. issue? But you know what could have been an interesting and relatable course of Xander's character? And this is so like typical and natural of people that have um parents that they don't want to end up like and they have trauma and they're scared of that is usually what happens is they have lots of fear in their relationship and they're emotionally unavailable for a bit um and they they show lots of inconsistencies emotionally like either they're really present in a moment or they're really void another moment and i've been that person and i feel like it could have been so much more interesting if they showed mm. more of that with Xander, because they kind of show him being like, uh, uh, at least to me, you guys can disagree, but at least to me right now with him and Anya, that's exactly what's happening. It's like he's really in in a moment with her, or he's like not really emotionally present with her. Um, and I really feel like it would could have been so cool if his entire dream sequence was him kind of like wrestling with that. But it was like, Again, showing the whole sexual side, which we've seen for the past four seasons. Like, we don't need to see more of that and multiple scenes of that when there's really nothing else to talk about with it. Like, it's not like they did anything different with those scenes. It's not like they did something really cool and, like, metaphor. It's it's just really blaringly obvious. Like, that was the weakest part of this episode to me. Yeah, I think they're trying to show that Xander is trying to slap a Band-Aid over his very real issues and uh, by thinking about sex and looking for pleasure in places that he should not be and instead of dealing with his actual issues. um, And, you know, he ends up in the basement every time he tries to uh, initiate sex with Joyce or she initiates with him or Willow and Tara do and stuff. Um, So again, the episode is not necessarily saying these are good things, but it just, it was unnecessary. I, I really think it was. We get, we get it. Xander likes sex, which is fine. Good for him. But like, there's more to him than that, you know? All right, so there's a steady cam towards the playground, swings, carousel, sandbox. Buffy sits in the sandbox, idly digging sand with a little plastic shovel. Giles and Spike, who is dressed in a tweedy suit kind of like Giles, sit on the swings. Interesting that Spike is only in Giles and Xander's dreams, but not in Willow and Buffy's. I know. I was actually shocked to see Spike in Xander's. But then I remembered how much time they spent in that basement. Yeah. I was like, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Spike says, Giles here is going to teach me to be a watcher, says I got the stuff. Giles is like, Spike's like a son to me. And we're like, well, since when? (laughs) Yeah, I don't really understand that. And I also don't understand when Xander was like saying, oh, I've been there. I've done that. Maybe he was like trying to say that he he wanted Giles' approval at at one point. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I understood all the references with Buffy in the sandbox where it was just pretty much like Buffy being like, you know, I live here, I belong here, blah, 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 because the first layer. But the Spike one, I kind of was like, huh. 
Well, okay. Who is the character that Xander has spent the most time with this season just by default? It's Ben Giles. And so I think there's a part of Xander that kind of wanted to kind of wanted Giles to take him under. Like Mark Field thinks that Xander was thinking about being a watcher based upon some of his dialogue here. I don't know about that. Um, but I can kind of see that they were they were becoming kind of close this season simply through forced proximity. Not necessarily because Giles likes Xander, but because they had no one else to hang out with. Um, but it's crazy that Xander thinks Giles would prefer Spike to himself. That's how low Xander thinks of himself. And Xander hates Spike and demons. So that's saying a lot. Um, it's interesting that Xander is the only character that looks at himself and from a third party perspective. Like almost like he's watching himself stuck, frozen, just staring down the sandbox at Buffy, like obsessed with Buffy to the point where like he's incapable of moving forward in life, which I thought was really interesting. All right. So then the ice cream truck, um, the background outside the car intentionally was made to look fake to give a sense of stillness where there should be motion. Whedon originally wanted to use rear screen projection for the driving scene, but had to utilize green screen instead as rear screen projection would be difficult to set up on their stages. So Anya says, do you know where you're going? Xander just says no. And then she says, I've been thinking about getting back to vengeance. So this whole scene, this is just, okay, who is the one woman that Xander does not sexualize in this entire dream sequence. Mm-hmm. Literally his girlfriend. His girlfriend. But it's also like – Is it because it's all, it's all about the idea of like new is hotter? And so it's the fact that he has her, that he's not sexualizing her because like he doesn't have to, which is just misogyny. <laughs> um a lot of issues with that. But it's like it, it's the idea of like guys finding girls that aren't your girlfriend or wife or whatever much hotter because they don't know what they look like naked because they haven't had sex with them. You know, it's like mm. it's the whole idea of them not being there is the chase that's hotter. And that's just gross. <laughs> yeah. I – I've said it since the beginning. I don't know if Xander actually likes Anya. I think he's just simply with her because he's not getting comfort, attention, validation from anyone else and she's pursuing him hardcore and he really needs someone in his life right now and so he's just kind of settling for her when in actuality he wants to be with Buffy. He wants to be with Joyce. I, oh God forbid, I hope not. But it seems like he wants to be with literally anybody else but Anya. And the fact that this conversation happens in this ice cream truck, which the only time we've seen that was in Where the Wild Things Are, and that they had that big fight about Xander not wanting to have sex with Anya. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. I think the show meant for that episode to be a big turning point for he and Anya where they have to fight for their relationship and that's why the scene is here, but it didn't play out exactly the way they wanted to. Instead, it makes it seem like Xander doesn't want to have sex with Anya because maybe he's attracted to literally everyone else but her. I hope that's not what they're trying to say, but that's kind of what's happening here. Um, I just saw it more as he uses the women around him as a distraction from the actual issues in his relationship. Oh, 100%. 100%. 
Yeah. And I mean, it highlights another one of Xander's failed jobs. The Scoobies and even Anya are all moving ahead in life, shown by the truck racing by at full speed, and he's just coasting along, not sure where he's going. The phrase, I'm going places, got to be moving forward, are used by him when talking to others um, like Will and Buffy, but both their responses are, I'm way ahead of you. When he's by himself, he uses phrases like, that's not the way out. And everyone around him, according to Xander, seems to not believe he's capable and able to go anywhere. And there also seems to be a fear that Anya will go back to being a vengeance demon. Okay, then we have this scene with Willow and Tara where they're way sexualized. Um, in this entire dream sequence, this is the only time that we see Willow in Xander's dream. She's his childhood friend, and this is the only way that he sees her. It's just very, very strange. I don't get it. They start speaking again without their their lips actually moving. They say, we just think you're so interesting, yada, yada. They invite him back over with them. There's an implied kiss that happens off screen, and then Xander like asks Anya and she's like, oh, go on. Like, like she doesn't care. And then he just goes back and then all of a sudden he's back inside of the basement again. Then he runs into the cheese man. The cheese man said, these will not protect you. So again, with that theory that these will not protect you, if the cheese symbolizes Buffy, the cheese man is saying, Buffy will not protect you. You have to make this choice all on your own, which I think is kind of, is kind of a cool interpretation for that one at least. All right, so in the school, everything looks green. Uh, Xander runs into Giles. Okay, so these past couple of dream sequences have been about the women in Xander's life and how he sexualizes them or how he views them. The next few scenes are about the men, the authority figures in Xander's life. So the women are supposed to talk about Xander's mommy issues. Now we're going to talk about Xander's daddy issues. Um, so he runs into Giles. Giles is speaking French, says the others have all gone ahead, showing that Xander feels inferior, feels like he can't understand what Giles is saying because he's not as smart. Anya also pops up uh, and Xander can't understand what she's saying as well. I kind of see these next three interactions as like his past, his present, and his future. So Snyder is his past. He tells him he's worthless, more or less. Giles speaking in a language that Xander can't understand, then chooses Spike as his watcher apprentice, is his present. And then his future, as we find out about his abusive monster of a father, um, Xander's afraid that he's going to become like his father. So that's kind of how I view it. Um, so then we have this uh, apocalypse now, uh, like almost a, a mere shot for shot from the time that Xander gets picked up by the initiative guys. Um, in the university hallway, the scene is lit with green and orange gels, while the almost shot for shot recreation of the Apocalypse Now section is lit with carefully controlled spotlights, which allow the background to fall out to black. Whedon cites the limeys and inspiration for the unnaturally colored university sequence and had the scenes from Apocalypse Now playing on tape during filming to ensure as close a match as possible for that sequence, which I was like, that is dedication, man. All right, so Xander is led by the initiative soldiers into a alcove, and we see a man laying down in the dark. Leah, it's your favorite character. I was like, Snyder? Like, I had zero <laughs> memory of him being in this. I think I've literally seen this episode, like, once because I saw it once, and I was like, what the frick? And then I moved on. But I just was like, why is Snyder in Sanders? Of all people. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd. I think the idea is they're trying to, again, like I said before, they're trying to show the authority figure for Xander's school life. Um, and I mean, in in a in very many words, Snyder basically is like, you guys are a bunch of dirt. Like basically summarizing everything that he thought of everybody, all the high school students for his entirety of time in the show. He's exactly the same. He's just more sweaty. <laughs> 
true. <laughs> Xander says, you know, I never got the chance to tell you how glad I was you were eaten by a snake, which is Xander finally getting to tell Snyder what he thinks of him as he promised all the way back in Halloween, which just ah, feels like a full circle moment. And then Snyder says, are you a soldier? Xander says, I'm a convertidor, kind of saying what he said to Joyce and what Joyce brought up to him. Snyder says, you're neither. You're a whipping boy raised by mongrels and set on a sacrificial stone, which we will keep this all in mind going into season five, talking about, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be anybody's butt monkey anymore, which is one of my favorite lines ever. So uh, Xander's like, you know, I'm just not going to listen to this anymore. So he gets up and he ends up in Giles's courtyard. And then we have this really cool long running sequence where Xander goes between all the sets, which is so cool because like this is the actual setup in the warehouse. Like as he's walking through, this is how you would get from one set to the next, which I just think is so cool. Um, so Xander sees the first Slayer coming after him. He walks into Giles's apartment. He sees... Uh, everybody, um, including Anya, standing around trying to figure out what to do with Willow, um, which is interesting. His view of Anya is that she's more a part of the Scooby gang. She's more worthy to be there than he is. Whedon used a variety of techniques to achieve the dreamlike quality of Restless. He used tracking shots with a steady cam to follow the characters from place to place, creating a flow in the way of rural dreams, where there are no logical connections between places and things. In Giles's dream, he walks from a carnival ground into Spike's crypt, then through a corridor and straight into the bronze, three locations not related to one another. Whedon was able to do this by simply having actor Anthony Stewart head walk through the sets as they were built. This effortlessly created a sense of dreamlike dislocation. Another example this occurs when in Xander's dream, he walks from the front of the moving ice cream van towards the back, crawls up and over some boxes. So Xander is afraid. He goes into Buffy and Willow's dorm room. He's still being chased and he ends up right back in the basement once again. And he's looking up and he says, that's not the way out. The door bursts open and we all are expecting to see the first slayer there, but instead it's a man. He says, what the hell is wrong with you? You won't come upstairs. Xander's body language immediately puts his head down like in like almost like a submission stance. Like I, I don't want to cause trouble. I'm not trying to do anything. The man continues to braid him, says, what are you? ashamed of us. Your mother's crying her guts out. Xander says, you don't understand. The figure stomps down the stairs, says, no, you don't understand. Life ends here with us. You're not going to change that. You haven't got the heart. Joss says, the evil father there is the real problem. The heart of his story, the heart of his misery. He can't stop being a Harris. That is his real fear. And I was like, oh, I felt that man. His dream ends with a culmination to his encounters with various male authority figures, displaying all the traits Xander hates about himself as his father storms down the basement, transforming into the first layer and ripping his heart out, metaphorically turning Xander into his dad and removing his compassion. Yikes. All right. So we're back in real time. We are now on Giles's dream. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Leah's been waiting. Oh, oh yes. yes. Giles and Buffy's are the best, honestly. And I okay. think theirs are the shortest. They are the shortest, yeah. All right. So immediately we see the watch swinging right before us. The voices are far off and echoey. We see the tweed suit. It's Watcher Giles. Okay. What do you guys think of this first like scene between Giles and Buffy? Well, I feel like the first scene like perfectly like ties into the very end. When he finds the watch mm -hmm. and he, oh, what did he say? He said like, that's predictable or something like that. Yeah. And then like the watcher comes, the not the first watcher, the first slayer comes and like attacks him. So I thought it was like, his was very cohesive. 
I think it was interesting. I think it's like part of it is trying to say that he really wishes that he could be able to kind of control Buffy a bit more. Not out of like a controlling aspect, but more of like a protection thing of like he wished that she followed along more with him. There's a lot of paternal themes in his, but I always kind of, I view the watch as just hitting nail on its head like him being the watcher so like him kind of being informative with her with the watch in front of her is like him leading her as the watcher um and then we see the blend of the watcher and like father giles throughout his dream sequence as well and then uh the blend between him struggling between both of those coins and his own life unrelated to buffy Mm -hmm. his is just a lot more interesting there's also, and I I talked about this earlier. There's a a strong hint of toxic patriarchal system that's ingrained in Giles that he's doesn't seem to be aware that he still has ingrained in him. So he says, "You have to stop thinking. Let it wash over you." This this scene and a couple of these other scenes remind me a lot of Helpless when Giles uh, hypnotizes Buffy to um, put that needle in that takes away her powers for a little bit and how he deeply betrays her and makes her feel awful, but he does it because he believes that's his duty and it's directly at war with his affections for her as a father. So the line says, you have to stop thinking, let it wash over you. Buffy says, you don't think that it's a little old fashioned. And Giles says, this is the way women and men have behaved since the beginning before time. So again, the episode is really delving into Giles's patriarchal watcher roots. The empty house with only Buffy there and Giles's full attention on her immediately tells you that she is his primary concern and focus and that his full identity is in being a watcher. Like it's been her all season. Without Buffy, he's not sure what his purpose is and who he is. Without it, he feels lost, which we have seen this season. So now he must make a choice, remain a father figure and watcher or start his own life, which is represented by Olivia. So Josh says, when kids go off to college, they don't need their parents as much and they don't communicate with them as often. At this stage of Buffy's progression to adulthood, we therefore expect Giles to feel neglected. In fact, Giles was feeling useless as early as Wild at Heart when he showed up at the bronze very awkwardly and then later when he was watching game shows on TV and appeared overeager to see Buffy. Giles's big problem is that he can't decide who he wants to be. Should he be going off and being a father, having a real life? What's going on? So then we pull back, um, like he, he says, look into the light, very reminiscent of the helpless again. Uh, apparently this one scene, Sarah Michelle Geller hates laughing on camera because it's the hardest action to make look authentic and natural. And Joss Whedon actually stood behind the camera and made faces at her to get her to laugh in this scene, which like, I feel like he did a good job because you can tell like, it looks It authentic. looks genuine. Yeah. It's so funny that you said that because when she like like laughed or whatever, trying to be a little child, in my head I was thinking, I was like, that is a hard thing to do. Like laughing genuinely, but then also trying to seem innocent and young while doing so. I think I would just look creepy. Like uh, I feel like she did. I, I genuinely thought that when I saw that. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a good laugh. Yeah, I agree. All right. So then the graveyard, also a 
fair. So Buffy's pulling Giles along, trying to get him to hurry in her overalls with her red shirt. Again, helpless not. She wore these overalls in helpless and then the red riding hood metaphors, which again, I can't stress this enough. That's one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. If you have not listened to it, there's so much good stuff there. Our brother David's with us, so go back and listen to it. Um, But this set, I love this set. They're going to see a carnival and a fair set in a graveyard, a slayer's playground. It's so cool. Um, Olivia is there. Olivia's pregnant, but she's pushing an empty baby stroller. What do you guys think is the reason for that? I think the whole point is that it's like Giles will never be able to provide anything, any sort of life for her. So it's like they may have this dream of like being a family and like all this stuff, but it, it ultimately it will always be about him and Buffy. I think the idea of Olivia being pregnant is showing like the potential for Giles to be a father. Like he still has time, but like the stroller being empty shows that like it hasn't happened yet and like time is ticking away. Like he and also the watch too is showing that Giles doesn't have much time. Like he needs to figure out what he wants now while he has the chance. Um also like Giles as Buffy's like over there grabbing the ball, like a kid throwing it at the fake vampire and Giles is like Buffy, you have a sacred birthright to protect mankind. Don't stick out your elbow. You know, all that stuff. I would imagine this is how it feels to be a watcher. Like, yada, yada, this slayer dies, another one will rise. Obviously, that's not Giles anymore. But there's a contrast between what Giles has been taught and then also the knowledge that Buffy could and most likely will die and his love for her. Um, And Markfield says the same. He says, Giles doubts that he still functions as a watcher or that he should. The scene at the carnival tells us that Giles, much like all parents, still sees Buffy as a child. And he's warring between his affections with her and what he feels his duty is, which we've seen for the past couple of seasons. At one point, Buffy grabs some cotton candy. He's like, you're going to get that all over your face. But then she turns and her face is caked with mud. She looks wild and primeval, breathing hard through her nose. Um, We'll talk about that when we get to Buffy's dream and stuff. But Giles instantly recognizes her and goes, I know you. And it's interesting, but it also makes sense that the brain of the group would figure out that it's the first slayer quicker than anybody else. And then a scene. Spike's all like, come on, you're going to miss everything. And he's got like garden gnomes like surrounding Bro, that killed because the crypt comes out of nowhere. And then we go in there and it's like, it's just him and Spike. And Spike is just like posing for cameras. And uh, Giles is just like, or should I kill you when I had the chance? (laughs) I still think Buffy should have killed you. Yeah. Well, he walks by Olivia who is – Still pregnant, but she's sitting by an overturned stroller and she's crying, Um, which I think that represents Giles' ignored life for the sake of being a watcher. And we haven't seen Olivia since Hush, and this is the last time we see her. Um, And Olivia wasn't sure if she could live with Giles' life at that time, um, showing that Giles is giving up so much to be a watcher, but he's not even sure if that's his calling anymore and wishing that Buffy would actually need him because that would maybe give him purpose in his life. So the black and white in conjunction with Spike's poses and Giles calling the sideshow freak is a nod to the old black and white vampire films. Um, It's a clash of how Giles thinks a vampire should act and how modern Spike is. Um, And it's, it's, it's meant to emphasize that Spike is seen as an old thirties movie villain, which is kind of funny. Uh, Spikes has got to make up your mind, Roops. What are you wasting time for? Haven't you figured it all out yet with your enormous squishy frontal lobes? 
Um, so then Giles walks past a cheese man who says, I wear the cheese. It does not wear me, meaning you are Buffy's watcher, but it should not define you. Again, making sense of something that's probably complete nonsense. When you mentioned that you thought that the cheese was was Buffy, that's the first one that came to mind. I was like, that one really fits well with that Mm -hmm. metaphor. Yeah. I think Willow's is the biggest stretch, but um, it still can fit if you really think about it. All right. So now we are in the bronze and Giles's living room is set directly inside of the bronze um, in the middle of the club near the stage. Xander and Willow look worried going through the books on Giles's coffee table. Willow is very uh, judgmental of Giles, kind of blames him a little bit, says that he should be there earlier. It's funny how Xander views Anya as a part of the gang and as someone who contributes and is smarter than him, but uh, Giles views Anya very similar to how he views Spike, someone who's just kind of like class clown. And then how I noticed he even- that. Yep. How Giles kind of views her as just like someone who isn't temporary and also someone who's just kind of like there for laughs. Mm-hmm. You notice how she's talking and then he mutes her as Willow is talking. And then as they're trying to have a dialogue, you can't hear her at all. So it's like Giles could care less about what is happening over there. So, so far... Tara has only been featured in Willow's dream, not at all in Giles, and simply sexualized in conjunction with Willow in Xander's. And Riley wasn't in Xander or in Giles's at all, which again, like it's interesting seeing how everybody else is viewing the significant others. Giles keeps saying he's busy, talking about all the stuff he's doing, watching and the gig at the bronze when we've watched him for a whole season and know he's not actually that busy. In a lot of ways, he's floundering like Xander is. Um, Giles starts to put two and two together, kind of figuring out that the spell was the reason why all this is happening to them. Uh, all of a sudden, Anya like gives her punchline, and everyone's still ignoring Anya, except Xander starts laughing hysterically. And it's also interesting that Buffy's not there too. So this is how <laughs> Giles views Xander, which no one's shocked by that at all. Willow calls Giles by his first name. She says, Rupert, if we don't know what we're fighting, I don't think we have a chance. So Willow never calls Giles by his first name. And I I was like, okay, Willow's hair and outfit bother me because it's not quite Willow, but it's not like super young either. Like who is Willow supposed to represent? And then it hit me. That's how Jenny wore her hair and how Jenny dressed. You know, Jenny always wore her hair up and like in a comb in the back of her head. And then she had like the long skirt. He views her as like a young Jenny. Possibly. And I don't think he's like seeing her romantically, but I think he has great respect for her and sees her as an equal. So then we have that really cool sequence where Giles um, gets up and starts singing his exposition, which is a really, really fun thing. Christoph Beck and Joss – well, Christoph Beck composed this, but Joss wrote the words and stuff like that. And if you look, you can actually see Christoph Beck playing the piano for this scene. It's kind of fun. I think it was perfect. A, I think they really just wanted to get Anthony Stewart to sing. They're really trying to – fit that in there but <laughs> also think, I think it was interesting because it's like I feel like everyone else views Giles as very like kind of boring and very like mundane but then like Giles he's like his version he's like singing and entertaining the crowd and like his job is so like like important and he's like assigning everything to everyone no one moves until he says so like it's just so interesting the way he views himself yeah that's true I didn't even think about that um Joss says, we're just 
We just stuck Giles's living room in the bronze. This just highlights Giles's problem because should I raise a family? Should I be a rock star? Or should I give the boring exposition in every episode of Buffy? And of course, we combine the two by getting him to get up and sing the exposition. So the mic goes dead. Uh, Will and Xander barely look up from their books as Giles crawls around following the cable, finds a whole like complex, tangled mess over there, which, you know, you can read into it and be like, all right, he that's his life right now. That's his choices. Everything's all messed up. He finds the watch. And then this, this is so interesting. He goes, well, that was obvious. Like he always says, he's like, oh man, I should have figured that out. He says, I know who you are and I can defeat you with my intellect, cripple you with my thoughts. And then as she cuts open his head, he says, of course you underestimate me. You couldn't know you never had a watcher. What do you guys think about like that line in particular? I think it's a he wants to convince himself that part of the reason why Buffy is the way she is is because she had him by her mm-hmm. side, which I I do think is accurate. But I also think that he wants to see the good in previous layers and be like if if I if you had had someone who actually cared about you and who wasn't just a like counselor pup well not counselor but like counsel puppet that you would have had someone who could have actually taken care of you i also think that like this makes giles's choice obvious like it's very obvious he will choose to be a watcher because here of course is what happens when you don't have one kind of what you were saying leah giles untangling the cords could be a symbol for what he does as a watcher but it could also be how entangled his desires are the irony of this scene is that he actually can't stop the first with his intellect he tries and he fails and it's actually he that is underestimating her so this again this ingrained patriarchal view that the slayers need the watchers when it's actually the other way around um, as we come to find out, which is just, yeah, it's very interesting. Can't wait to talk about more spoilers. All right, so Giles is gasping for breath. So is Willow. So is Xander. And now we are on Buffy's turn. The best for the last man. Oh, so good. All right, so Buffy is in her dorm room, in her bed. Originally in the script, this was supposed to be Willow in the bed telling Buffy to wake up. I thought it was kind of odd that it was Anya. I was going to say, yeah. 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 I don't know why. I think the the reason, my guess, is they intentionally don't have any of the gang in Buffy's dream. It's Buffy alone because she's the slayer. Mm-hmm. She's alone. So they wanted to have someone that was not close to her, someone that was not one of her friends that was asking for help. And I I appreciate that because if it had been Willow, we would have been like, why is it Willow and not Xander? Why is Jazz not here? So my favorite dream because, well, it's Buffy. But also Buffy's dreams are prophetic and there is so much foreshadowing and I'm so excited to talk about it, especially because like the next episode we can start talking about stuff. It's going to be so good. By next episode, I mean – um the non-spoiler for uh, season five, episode one. Okay. So it is sunrise or morning again. Joss says, Buffy's fear is fear of abandonment, i.e. that every time she cares about someone, she'll be deserted. Worse than even this is her fear that the reason people abandon her is that there's something wrong with her, that it's her fault. We saw this in Nightmares when her father was telling her that she's the reason for the divorce. She's the reason why they had all those problems and stuff. Um, And in Fear Itself, she's told that she will be left and abandoned by all her friends. And so this entire episode is Buffy looking for her friends being like, no, no, I need to find them. They wouldn't leave me. They just need me. 
All right. So Buffy says, I need my beauty sleep. Stop. So she turns and right above her hanging from the ceiling that totally made me jump, complete jump scare, uh, is the is the primitive, as the, the script calls it, was the first. It roars in her face. Um so there was a rough draft for this final act. So Joss was a little pressed for time when he wrote Restless. So the fourth act is mostly a rough outline and it was filled in as time went on. Um, and quite a bit was changed. So Buffy wakes up. She's in her bedroom. And uh, we cut. All of a sudden now she's standing in her doorway looking back at a mess of a bed from her doorway. And Tara's next to her. And Buffy goes, Faith and I just made that bed. And this part was cut out of the script. It says, it has to be ready. And then we have a variation of the theme, the music that played when she and Faith made the bed in this year's Girl and also their shared dream in Graduation Day. So back in Graduation Day, Buffy remarks on the cat jumping on the bed, asking who's going to take care of him. Faith says that she's a girl before walking to the window, staring at the sunrise, while Buffy says, there's something I'm supposed to be doing. And Faith stares at the sunrise and says, oh, yeah, miles to go, little Miss Muffet counting down from 730. Buffy says, great, more riddles. Faith says, sorry, it's my head, a lot of new stuff. So this is actually very similar to the very first scene of this episode or the first dream sequence with Willow and Tara where they're talking about naming the cats and how the cat's young doesn't have a name yet. And then Willow says, there's something I need to be doing. And then she goes and looks out the window and there's a golden light coming in at the desert yada, yada. So then in this year's girl, Buffy says, I wish I could stay. And then Faith says, you got to go. And Buffy and Faith are making the bed at this point. Buffy says, it's just with, and Faith says, little sis coming. I know so much to do before she gets here. Buffy says, now I really have to go. So in this sequence with between Buffy and Faith, when they're making the bed, and I think I talked about this um, back in this year's girl, but Buffy was actually supposed to glance at the clock even though we don't see what time it is, but they cut that out from that scene. So in this this scene, back in present day in Restless, Tara has golden light on her and she says, for who, in reference of the bed. Buffy says, I thought you were here to tell me. The guys aren't here, are they? We were going to hang out and watch movies. And Tara says, you lost them. Buffy says, no, I think they need me to find them. And then she looks at the clock at her bed and it reads 7.30, And they have Sony at the top of the clock and then they have the S and N very clear and they have the O and the Y blacked out. So it's just S-N, which is supposed to be sun. And then you have A-M-7-3-0. So it's sun A-M. So then Buffy says it's so late. Tara says, oh, that clock's completely wrong. So this is not the end of the countdown. So then Tara pulls out a tarot card and tries to hand it to Buffy and says, here. And the tarot card given to Buffy is upside down with the word representing hand, manus, being read backwards, S-U-N-A-M, which is sun A-M, just like the clock. <laughs> so I think they're trying to tell us that sunrise is really important, 7.30. In every dream sequence, they're like, sunrise, sun, su- sunrise. 730. <laughs> yeah. Bed, cat. <laughs> We're like, what is it? Just tell us at this point. So Buffy tells Tara she's not going to need the cards. I don't need those. Tara moves closer and says, you think you know what's to come, what you are. You really have no idea. And then we look back and this part gives me goosebumps. The bed is now made and the script says it's very still. And Buffy says, I got to find the others. And then Tara says, be back before dawn. And holy smokes, guys, I can't wait for season five. It's going to be so good. Um, The end of the scene actually was supposed to end with Buffy closing her eyes. 
Um, and and then she was immediately supposed to go and meet up with Riley. We don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> they knew. They're like, let's cut that out. All right, in the university, Buffy's walking through the hall. Once again, we're back to the red and gold. Tara's wearing gold. Um, Buffy's wearing red. The dress that Buffy's wearing is actually extremely similar to the dress she wore in The Freshman. Yeah, the um, I the noticed cherries. that too. I was like, I think she's worn this dress. It's different, but it's very, very similar, which is a kind of a cool like beginning and closing of that college chapter. Um, so Buffy comes across her mom in the wall, which is like a hole to look out. What did you guys think of this scene? I honestly had no clue. I was like, what the frick is happening? Maybe, I mean, if it's from her perspective, I get a little bit confused. If it was from Joyce's perspective, I could read into it a bit. But like, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I guess like the Halloween episode this season could be like the whole fact that she feels guilty that she doesn't see her mom as much this season. And Buffy being the person that's always like hard on herself is like over dramatizing it where it's like, oh, like I'm putting my mom in a wall and like and like I'm treating her horribly. But this is me just pulling it out of my butt right now. So I really Mm -hmm. don't know. So I think there's there's many different ways to read this. I think that Buffy walls Joyce off from her life in order to protect Joyce from the harshness of her Slayer life. Um, I think she does it to protect her emotionally and also physically. Um, I also think that Buffy's just too busy living life in a lot of ways and doesn't know how her mom will react to certain decisions she has to make. I mean, the fact that Joyce just met Riley this episode after Buffy's been dating him for almost the entire season um, shows how much that Buffy doesn't include Joyce in her life. Um, Joss says she ignores her mother when she does ask for some help because she's off doing the next thing. And that's the saddest part of this this moment for me is Buffy says, I really don't think you should live in there. And Joyce says, well, you could probably break through the wall, but then Buffy sees Xander and is already distracted and is moving on. So I think it's showing that Buffy in a lot of ways is neglecting Joyce simply because she's just so busy. And it's unintentional, but it is there. Um, so then Buffy follows Xander, of all people, up to where the initiative is. Okay, this is an interesting scene. What did you guys think of Riley and Adam here? Well, I think it's it's interesting that right away he calls her killer. Yeah. She walks up. He says it later, but it's a lot more aggressive. But I also think it's trying to show that, like, Riley, Buffy views Riley as initiative first. Like, she Mm. views him as putting the initiative before her. And she also fully doesn't trust his not necessarily his intentions but doesn't trust his choices like the fact that he's like oh yeah we're gonna take over world domination or whatever and she was like Mm -hmm. uh like is that a good idea like you can tell she has doubts about riley still yeah yeah she's like where your loyalties Mm -hmm. lie i just see it as brothers having bonding time (laughs) <laughs> no all they need is to have forest there with them and it's like oh, the trifecta over here. no he's gone Sarah don't bring him up again <laughs> um okay so this scene was originally laid out a little bit differently <laughs> so Buffy walks in this was uh, in a bright white space and Buffy approaches slowly from a distance Riley to the fellow we're being interrupted 
close on the man as he turns towards us. We see Adam. He smiles at Buffy. Adam, hello. Buffy says, hi, I keep seeing people that I don't expect. Adam says, that's to be expected. Buffy says, but I'm looking for my friends. Riley says, we were sitting here wondering why Maggie chose the name Adam. Buffy says, because she lacks imagination. Adam says, that's my theory. He wasn't the first anyway. I guess you know that. Buffy says, what was your name? Riley sternly says, Buffy, that's his. Buffy says, oh, well, I'm really sorry about the whole killing you thing. Adam says, that's what you do. Buffy says, but you know, different circumstances would have gone another way, not with the killing, but Adam's already walking away. So Buffy turns to Riley and says, touchy. And then that's when it all happens. So I'm I'm kind of glad that, that that feels a little bit more um, in your face. This is a little bit more subtle. And it's more focused on Riley, not on Adam quite as much, which I think is where it needs to be. The angles from this make Riley look like a supervillain, frankly. They shoot from the bottom. The gun is very much in focus. Um, the world domination thing. I mean, it's just it, – it's interesting because this is how Buffy views Riley. And I'm just – I'm blown away because I'm like, are you guys sure that she likes this guy? <laughs> are you sure? Y'all are showing a lot of signs that this isn't going to work out. Like, why is he yeah. still here? Right. Joss says, Riley playing Buffy's fear of what he could be, the government incarnate, the businessman, the suit, evil corporate CIA guy. This shows that the relationship is not entirely stable. And even though she loves him in her dream, he is someone who doesn't get her and who doesn't belong in her world. And I'm like, Joss, <laughs> none of us are attached to this guy because we don't feel like he's going to last, honestly. And what's interesting to me is originally Angel was supposed to be Buffy's spirit guide. <laughs> And so you're going to have the contrast between like Angel as the spirit guide, her ex, and then Riley. I'm dead. (laughs) They should have done it. That would have been so good. All right. So Adam says she's uncomfortable with certain concepts. It's understandable. Aggression is a natural human tendency, though you and me come by it another way. Buffy says we're not demons, but she has the first slayer behind her. And Adam looks at her knowingly and says, is that a fact? And there's kind of like this like pregnant pause. And then Riley says, Buffy, we've got important work here. A lot of filing and giving things names. In the Bible, Adam, the first man, was tasked by God to give things names. Um, But Joss points out, he says, somebody actually, uh, a person on the internet pointed this out to Joss. He says, something I hadn't noticed was Willow and Tara talk about letting something tell you its name. And then Riley talks about naming things specifically, the idea of the masculine and feminine version of how to experience the world, the feminine version of letting it come to you, and the masculine version of sort of conquering it and codifying it yourself. So then Buffy asks Adam, what was your name? Adam says, before Adam, not a man among us remembers. And he says, a man. So the whole vibe that I'm getting from this is that this first layer is a lot more significant than we're than we even know. Um, so then the demons have escaped. Buffy starts to panic as Adam and Riley. <laughs> we this could be trouble. The pillow fight. <laughs> we better make a fort. I'll get the pillows. <laughs> So they leave. They leave Buffy standing there, too frightened to speak, and she whispers, no, wait, I have weapons. And then she reaches into this bag that appears at her feet, and it's filled with the mud, and she puts it on her face, and the demons are no longer gone. The script says she looks up at Riley, face now looking just a little like it was when Giles saw it, animal. And Riley comes back. He's now dressed in civilian clothes. He says, if that's the way you want it, killer, I guess you're on your own. 
the mud is supposed to signify Buffy's going back to her slayer roots, the more animalistic side of being a slayer. And the inferences that we're getting between her conversations with Adam and the animalistic side of the slayer and all this stuff is that Buffy and the slayer line potentially might have a little bit more animal or demon in them than originally thought. And what's interesting is that scares away Riley. Yep. That's the way I took it too, was the fact that it was like, Riley can't really fully accept what being a slayer actually is. And once he sees that, it scares him off. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's so annoying. <laughs> and and he rejects Buffy dressed as a civilian, not as a soldier, showing that it's not necessarily the soldier part of True. Riley. It's-, it's Riley himself that can't that can't accept Buffy exactly. for who she is. Yep. So then the daylight streams in, the golden light on Buffy again. She's walking out on sand, and then we see that she's in the desert. She says, I'm never going to find them here, which this is meant to show this is where the first layer in like lives or at least lived. Um, and Buffy realizes that the more that she delves into her Slayer's side and the more she is alone, the further away she's going to be from her friends. Um, and ag- again, Willow sees the desert from her and Taro's window. Xander sees Buffy in the desert and fears for her safety. And Giles sees the mud representing the primal part of the Slayer and recognizes. So this is all led us to here. So then we have Tara coming to Buffy on the dune dressed in a Indian garb. I believe it's called a sari. Yeah. Isn't that like culturally kind of in like appropriation? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I hate the fact that the Slayer was, was, was a, the first Slayer was a black woman simply because of the way they portray her Mm -hmm. is so animalistic. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they do that because she's a black woman. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that it's it's frustrating when one of the few black women who are casted is the first Slayer who is pretty much nonverbal the whole time and just runs around, hunts people on all fours. And then Buffy makes that comment at the end about how her oh, hair yeah. wouldn't work in a professional environment. And her her hair is like, what, locks? Like it's dreads, yeah. Yeah, like a normal hairstyle for black people. It just is like uh, I don't know. I just feel like the optics aren't good. Yeah, like why like why couldn't it be a white woman or like why did it have to why did that the the person that they chose to portray that type of role have to be black? And I think it would be different if there was a lot of other black actors mm-hmm. and actresses, but it's the fact that there isn't and so mm-hmm. it's like they chose yeah ugh, I don't like it no I agree you you actually said what I was gonna say perfectly and Tara a white woman wearing a sari or at least part of one to appear more mystical because it looks more ethnic it looks more um what's the word I'm looking for it looks more other uh and then is speaking for a black woman Tara is representing the spirit of the slayer so first and foremost. Tara is not actually here and they talk about that. The spirit of the Slayer is just taking on the form of Tara. It's not actually her. Um, Now, here's the thing. And I want to be really clear and slight, slight, slight spoilers. The show is trying to say that the first not having a voice is not a good thing. Um, It's not totally clear in this episode, but it is clarified later on. Um, Whether it's because of her being the first Slayer, as in one of the early humans, because we don't know how old the first Slayer is. 
it could be that she's one of the first early humans who couldn't talk yet, or because the primal side of her, the more earthy animalistic side, like the mud on Buffy's face, has made her this way. I don't have a problem with that necessarily. I don't have a problem with her being a black woman and being portrayed in this way. Uh, What does make this problematic and where I do struggle with it is the show's bad history with non-white characters and their portrayal or lack of a portrayal of different ethnicities. Giving your black characters awful accents, short minor roles, killing them all off, all in service to your white cast while not having any black writers and all while misappropriating various cultures and even mocking outfits and natural black hair, then having the audacity to make this character unable to speak, unable to have a name, and walking on all fours, and also the episode's villain, that's a problem. Suddenly there's tons of thought going into this character when there barely was any for, say, Forrest, Kendra. The problem is not necessarily their portrayal of the first. It's the lack of thought put into the show for diverse cast and writers and all that stuff. And then to have a black person portrayed in this way, at its best, it's careless. At its worst, it's racist. It's also very similar to Cave Buffy, too. What would have been amazing, because I understand what they were trying to do with the first Slayer. I get it. But what would have been amazing is if they would have brought Kendra back or they would have brought a black Slayer back and had them speak for the first Slayer. If the first layer cannot speak, which we understand why she can't, then have it be another black person that's helping her speak or speaking for her. So that's that's a negative part of it. And again, I I don't want to I don't want to speak too much on that because so many great pieces have been written on this, and so many people have great things to say about that. And I definitely definitely recommend looking that up and listening to it. There's there's a great article that has quotes from um, the actors who played Kendra, who played Tara. Uh, Danny Strong, who played Jonathan, um, all those who talk about um, the roles of race on the show and all that other stuff. So I highly recommend looking that up and stuff. But so on the positive side for this scene, what they're trying to do here is to show how Buffy is shaking off the patriarchal chains of tradition in the Slayer line. She has a name. She takes ownership. Just as the cat and the first don't have one, Buffy has one. And we've seen in the show that a name is so powerful. In season three, you know, when they are like, what's your name? Buffy says, I'm I'm Buffy, the vampire slayer. And you are this, this idea of autonomy and taking your choice and your life in your hands and saying, uh, I'm not going to let you dictate and you determine who I am. I'm going to make that for myself. And so in this moment, Buffy is rejecting tradition, is rejecting what she has been told she always has to be as a slayer and is saying, no, she says, I walk, I talk, I shop, I sneeze. I'm going to be a fireman when the floods roll back. There's trees in the desert since you moved out and I don't sleep on a bed of bones. Now give me back my friends. And I think that's such a powerful moment of Buffy taking her autonomy. And it's in stark contrast to Tara as the first slayer saying, I have no speech, no name. I live in the action of death, the blood cry, the penetrating wound. I am destruction absolute alone but also the fact that buffy automatically knew that she was talking about the slayer like buffy in some way resonates with those feelings yeah totally yeah i just kind of feel like it's a little bit tone deaf of them to kind of have a black person play this character Mm -hmm. like it if we're talking about slayers that's all well and good it's just like when you make her seem so animalistic and a void of 
humanity and all these things it's just like it doesn't come across the best so it's like why would you have to cast someone and then also have them look the way they look with the clothes and then have them give them like traditional hair it's just it's too much but um i appreciate the fact of them talking about how slayers feel like they don't have a voice and buffy does and like Mm -hmm. the the difference between what slayers used to be i appreciate that part it's just a little bit frustrating um so then they fight honestly for me the worst part of this whole thing is when buffy wakes up she insults her hair and she kind of like rolls her eyes as you know, the first layer is fighting her. She says, you just have to get over the whole primal power thing. You are not the source of me. I know this is Buffy taking back her autonomy. This is Buffy making an existential stand. But to me, again, it's just tasteless. Like she's rejecting her past and it just feels a little bit like mocking. And I don't appreciate that, even though I understand what they're trying to do. So Joss says, I found Buffy's dream, unlike the other three, to be very existentialist. She basically was telling the powers that be that she sets her own course, makes her own decisions, not them. She doesn't believe in fate. She will be more because she chooses to. It makes her a wild card, sets her outside the boundaries. When we grow up, we take charge of our own lives. We stop letting others tell us how to live them. Age may factor into this to some extent, but I've always believed that the true sign of maturity is when you start taking responsibility for your own actions and the consequences of those actions and stop blaming others for them and stop waiting for for someone else to tell you what you should or should not do. By the end of her encounter in the desert with the first layer, Buffy realizes that she does not have to be entirely alone, that it is her closeness to friends and family that makes her a great slayer. And once she experiences this revelation, the efforts of the first slayer to continue to engage her in battle become fruitless and increasingly comical. The dream finally ends in a mundane way as Buffy refuses to accept the tragic climax and instead insists on normalcy in her life. So everyone wakes up. They're all debriefing around the table. They can't believe that it was the first Slayer. They somehow realize that joining their essence with Buffy and invoking the essence of the Slayer's power it was an affront. It, it offended her. Um, that's why she attacked them. Um, Joyce comes in. She's like, man, I guess I missed the fun. Sandra, you want to help me get some hot chocolate? Oh, it's just gross. Uh- yeah. And we're like, okay, bypassing that one. So Buffy's kind of out of it. She has a lot to process. She has some things that she is not sure what they mean. Neither are we at this point. So Giles asks if she's okay. She's like, I'm going to jump in the shower. So she gets up and goes upstairs. And as she's walking to the bathroom, she passes by her bedroom. And as she's looking at her maid bed, and it's dark and quiet, she hears Tara again. You think you know what's to come, what you are you haven't even begun. So she looks into the dark and she leaves. And for a beat, we hold on the empty room. And that is the end of season four. Finally. I'm so excited for season five. Good job, Sarah, for doing all the work for this episode. For doing all the research. Did that help clear things up for you guys? Do you feel like you understand a little bit better? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. I was like, please say yes. (laughs) I'm like, "Mm." Tyra's like, nope. Not at all. (laughs) And I'm I'm excited for our spoiler section, guys. It's going to be really fun. There's so much to talk about, like future stuff. 
Um, can't can't say what it is, but it's going to be really, really fun. We are going to have that on Sunday, June 4th at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, but we hope you guys can be there. It's going to be so much fun. There's going to be a lot to talk about. If you guys have anything that you want to add, you feel like we missed, do you guys have an interpretation for a specific scene, things you want to discuss, please email us. Please DM us. Um, we would love to hear from you. I always love hearing people's takes. Uh, and if you have anything you want to contribute for the spoiler section of Restless, let us know and we will read your thoughts on the podcast, on live. And yeah, thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Bye.